Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. back and you're listening to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host as always, Adam Lowther, and today we have with us somebody whom I've known for a very long time, Dr. Carl Rayberg, Air Force Colonel retired, who is now, you know, I met Carl when he was working on the air staff and stood up the, the China Studies Group uh, for a former chief, but he's now an assistant professor in the Graduate National Security Program at Liberty University, training our future national security leaders. And he's writing and thinking and getting quite a bit of work done. He's also happens to be a pretty good guy. Carl, thanks for coming on NucleCast to talk with us. Thank you very much, Adam. That's uh, very, very kind of you. And uh, um, so I, not to surprise you, but we have a good mutual friend uh, that I certainly want to acknowledge, and that's uh, Carl retired, uh, the late uh, Christopher Wren, who was both a good friend of ours, uh, who um, was a great man and uh, defended this country honorably, um, and was my deputy uh, in the in the uh, Asia Pacific cell that uh, that I headed up in uh, for the Air Force for a number of years, and um, so I just want to acknowledge uh, him. Both that's a mutual friend of both of ours. Yeah, whenever I come to DC, I usually try to make a a trip to go see him uh, at Arlington. So it's uh, well, at any rate. So uh, Chris, we miss your brother. But we still have things to talk about. And so we're going to talk about, you know, it's it's funny because you had reached out to me after listening to a previous episode that spurred you to want to discuss missile defense in the Asia Pacific, which is, you know, as we shift to China and as we think about the possibility of a fight over Taiwan and, you know, the Chinese have to cover 160 kilometers of water and we've got to cover 11,000, I think. It's it's quite a bit of a difference. And the Chinese have heavily invested in ballistic missiles and they're investing in hypersonics. And it's a very clear threat. And it's one you've spent considerable time researching and writing about in, in your work. So can you just lay out for us and for the guests what is the threat that the United States is going to face in the Pacific? Thank you very much uh, for that uh, uh, setup. Um, and Adam, um, the bottom line is a lot of people have obviously been watching what China has been doing. Um, and I, I would point people uh, to a couple documents, obviously the, uh, Annual China report uh, that DOD uh, puts out is probably the premier open source. And so uh, I'm going to be quoting open source uh, documents here. Um, and then back in 2015, 
if people want to really see how this threat really morphed and really accelerated um, is the RAND China scorecard. So if you if you Google uh, RAND and China scorecard, um, it was actually written in 2015, but it, it basically gives a great picture of what the threat was uh, in the late 90s and then uh, the early 2000s uh, and then around the 2015. And really what we've had is we've had an explosion, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> but really um, a, a breakout in missile um, and missile production. And if you think about it, and so this, I'm paraphrasing what the annual China report says, the missile testing and the missile things that China does is more than the whole rest of the world combined. So just, I mean, so think about that just for a second, that that is, uh, is how big. And then here in the last couple of years, and I know this is uh, close to your heart, uh, China is involved in a nuclear breakout. Okay, well, let me repeat that. A nuclear breakout. I, I really would not have, uh, I mean, so many people would not have expected this, but actually we've had open source people talking about this for the last two years. Um, this is huge. And to be able to pull that portion off, as well as the other aspects of what we call the PLA rocket force, which most of the capabilities are contained in, there's some uh, in the services as well. Um, that's just huge. Um, and we really have not responded well uh, to that threat. Um, one area to, of course, respond to that is in missile defense. Um, and again, um, the Chinese, unlike the Russians, have lots and lots of ballistic missiles, lots of different kinds. They have significantly more conventional uh, ballistic missiles. So unlike uh, the war in Ukraine that people have watched, uh, really, um, the Soviets, uh, or the Russians rather, um, their primary uh, short-range ballistic missile uh, used in the conflict was the SS-26 Stone. But the Chinese basically um, have so many different um, additional models and various uh, kinds that it really uh, pales in comparison. But they also have a huge cruise missile uh, threat um, that very few people have... Um, done a good job of acknowledging. Uh, you'll see some of my writings that have kind of made a clarion call on that. And then you throw out the new uh, kind of leading edge, cutting edge uh, threats that we're really concerned about, of course, is the hypersonics, uh, whether that be with uh, hypersonic cruise missiles or uh, hypersonic glide vehicles uh, that uh, really, really difficult uh, threats to get at. So that in a nutshell kind of gives you a, a panoply, but, uh, and then if you look at how we've responded, um, our response has been, you know, uh, pretty muted um, based on those huge changes over the last 20 years. So let me ask you two questions then. The first one is, as we've watched Russia in Ukraine, and we've watched their use of ballistic and cruise and hypersonic missiles, they have underperformed. And I wondered, and and we got that wrong. We we thought that their systems were better than they seem to have turned out to be. Do we have a good sense of the quality of the Chinese systems? That That's question number one. And then 
Question number two, do we have a good sense of tactically how the Chinese will employ their crews and ballistic missiles and the targets they're going to strike? Um, so excellent questions. So obviously limited discussion open source uh, on this. So, but you're right. Um, I think we got uh, some of the Russian threat uh, wrong, although I am waiting for a full and complete report. Um, a lot of lack of information on Russia, Ukraine, especially after the first three months. I wrote an article in June of 2022 and felt like we got had a good amount of information on what was going on then. But I think since that time, um, the information is still lacking. But nevertheless, by all appearances, the Russian cruise missiles are not quite as uh, good as what they uh, uh, were sold. Um, I would say that um, the Chinese, I think probably, even though they based a lot of their capabilities on Russian, uh, Russian capabilities, um, if you recall some of the history on, uh, on when Russia was there in the late 50s and 60s uh, before they had kind of the parting, uh, before they rejoined here recently, uh, they do a lot of testing um, and that open source Google, you can see they have actually simulated and set up bases. If and you can go to Google and a number of open source articles where they've actually designed and replicated bases in Okinawa, bases in Japan, and they um, practice firings of these. And so I think their due diligence um, is good. Will, will it be up to what we, so what's actually written? Uh, likely not, but I, I would not, um, I would not um, get too confident that they're going to perform as poorly uh, as the Russians. I just think that the uh, Chinese have done some more due diligence and they have so many other different systems. This is where the Russians, I think, uh, fell short uh, in a number of areas is uh, they really didn't have uh, uh, the robust uh, systems for this kind of uh, conflict. Um, so anyway, hopefully that answers your question. And so tactically, how do you see them employing their systems and going after what specifically? Yeah. So uh, again, no one can know exactly what they're uh, plans are, but I think uh, we can see that clearly um, they are going to go after uh, the key areas of our power projection. Um, if you look at a number of publications, you know that the Chinese looked at the Gulf War too, uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, very carefully, and they have a plan. Uh, it's called a counter-intervention plan. We call it A2. AD, um, anti-access and aerial denial. And so their plan is to keep us from coming in to help uh, anyone. So that's number one. Number two, the fact that when I go and look at the Google pictures, I see that they have ports um, that they are simulating, uh, attacking. So key ports uh, that we have for the Navy. Um, that they are, um, they also have uh, simulations of air bases um, um, that they're planning on attacking, um, as well as Army uh, integrated air missile defense uh, sites. So all those um, 
are obviously likely uh, targets uh, for the U.S. Obviously, we've been talking about Taiwan. They probably have a whole target set uh, there as well. But those are the main. So they're going after our power projection and our ability um, to flow forces in because what we have done um, uh, over the last you know, 20, 30 years is follow a um, follow a philosophy that will just flow in forces and take care of our uh, our adversaries. Um, China has thought through that uh, much more carefully, and that's why posture and presence and missile defense is so much more important um, uh, today um, than it has been in the past. Well, so that that brings up a you know sort of a follow-on question, and that is. Do we have adequate defenses for Guam, for bases in Japan, you know, for our, you know, Korea, for all, all of our assets and, you know, in the region, are are we defending them? Because we don't defend the homeland. We assume the homeland is safe. Are, are we defending our forward-based forces? Mm-hmm. So here's the way I would uh, say that. Uh, so looking at it from an open source perspective. Um, we look at our posture and presence of uh, missile defense. So, so right now, open source, we have one THAAD battery um, at, at Guam, um, and that's it. So obviously, the, the defense of Guam, we're, we're moving toward doing that. But if you look at Okinawa, um, we have um, some Patriot uh, capabilities, some PAC-3 capabilities. Um, um, in the Kadena um, uh, area, um, and then also on the main island uh, uh, of Japan. Um, and then if you look at Korea, we obviously have some capabilities there. So the, 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 the short answer is currently the current presence and posture is not adequate uh, to do a um, uh, the kind of defense that we need for both our ports our air bases, and then um, um, other critical assets um, um, that uh, we need to protect that would be on what we call a, a defended asset list. So uh, they're doing some work in Guam to mm-hmm. shore up defenses there. Can you talk about you know, the experimentation, the ideas, the systems that are, are going on that we're employing there what, what and and is that something that we can can grow to be an adequate defense of of guam mm-hmm. so um again a lot of open sources come out um on this um the original idea on defending guam really came out of a uh, george bush uh, policy directive um I believe is in uh, 2004 that said we needed to start defending our forward deployed forces. Um, the first, uh, other than the THAAD battery, which again, open source now says that we were primarily, the THAAD battery there is primarily against a, uh, a North Korean threat. Um, but early in uh, January, 2020, uh, PACOM commander uh, basically suggested that we put an Aegis ashore uh, capability, which is, uh, again, keep in mind, the Navy is probably the best service, likely the, I, I would argue, the best service in the world for a layered, comprehensive, integrated air missile defense. 
and um, uh, I think you've had previous guests that have talked to uh, Aegis and their capabilities. And so originally we were going to put an Aegis ashore like we're doing in Romania and Poland. Um, and But since then, other folks have looked at the problem and said, hey, we've got some other issues. And so what's essentially evolved is a combination of Aegis ashore and using um, army systems, um, THAAD, uh, likely PAC-3s, um, and then the area where um, we still have somewhat of a question mark is what we're going to do in cruise missile defense. But the bottom line is the, the foundation and the core are going to be linked to the SM-6 missile, which is one of the, one of the better missiles out there, and the SM-3, uh, if you've been following the SM-3 Block 1 and the Block 2s, which have uh, just been phenomenal those are critical. So yes, um, Guam, even as planned and what we know open source will be one of the most defended um, places that the U.S. has. Uh, the question is whether or not uh, we will be able to do that in a timely fashion and what the cost will be. Uh, those have been some recent uh, concerns that have developed over the last year um, and uh, happy to uh, talk to some follow-up questions on that. Well, we're at that time of the show where we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to ask you if you think we have the ability to expand our defenses prior to, you know, what General Minahan and, you know, we've seen some others who have suggested 2026, 2027 might be a time frame where Taiwan uh, comes under attack from the the Chinese. So when we get back, I want you to answer that question. You're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. We're back and we're talking to Carl Rayberger, and we've been having a great discussion about ballistic missile defenses in the Asia Pacific. So before the break, I asked you to think about the timing and can we get these defensive systems in place prior to a ex an expected 2026, 2027 uh, attack by the, the Chinese on Taiwan. Can, can we do that? Um, yes, I think we're capable. The, the plan that we have right now, though, um, is slipping to the right. Um, and the area that's slipping to the right uh, that is most concerning that may be um, is technically easier to do, but we seem to have had a problem is the cruise missile portion. So, so keep in mind, we have to protect against ballistic missiles. We have to protect against cruise missiles. We have to protect uh, against a 360-degree attack. We also have to think about uh, hypersonic uh, cruise missiles, hypersonic, um, other hypersonic weapons, whether they be hypersonic uh, glide vehicles. 
And then what's uh, really, uh, I think, opened our eyes with the Russia-Ukraine is the fact that we've seen not only in Russia-Ukraine, but in other places where you could have a combined attack where um, you could have drones that could come in and take out some of the IMD assets uh, prior. So yes, we uh, have the capability of getting some capability within the time frame, but right now the cruise missile defense portion um, seems to be lacking. And that's, uh, so there's a number of um, experts that have talked to that uh, in the last couple months open source. Uh, primarily because we're, it looks like we're relying mostly on the Army's IFPIC Increment 2, that's the indirect fire protection capability, which uh, uses the AIM-9X uh, Block 2 primarily for uh, cruise missile defense. That has recently slipped to the right again, um, and whether or not we're going to be able to get there uh, and get that capability uh, on island in time insufficient uh, numbers uh, right now is, is a question mark uh, that, uh, and again, we've had some articles just recently come up here in the last two weeks on that. Now, I, I don't claim to be a an expert on ballistic missile defenses and cruise missile defenses, but I think back, you know, I was, I was on board the USS Ramage and we had uh, the CWIS close in weapon systems. And, you know, it's a, 20 millimeter depleted uranium rounds basically shot out of a Gatling gun that, you know, it, it acquires targets, shoots them, reacquires them. And I remember doing uh, tests down off of Vieques and we would, you know, air, an air force aircraft was pulling a drone and we had to, you know, target the drone and take it out. And the, the, the sea whiz was on auto and it, shot down the drone and then it saw the tow cable and then it started, you know, moving up the tow cable toward the aircraft. And you, you, that pilot was not happy with that. So we had to, you know, turn off the SeaWiz mount, but I, I never hear about systems like that. It's, it's always sort of much higher end systems that, you know, we're looking at shooting down cruise, ballistic drone, are things like SeaWiz, whatever its current iteration is, and other sort of less expensive capabilities out there to to do some of this work to defend bases and assets? Yes, and so the really, really important point uh, that you bring up, uh, the importance of having uh, both a layered defense and then also having um, a low-cost defense, especially against the threats that are really not complicated. Um, so um, the Sea Whiz is a great weapon uh, for the Navy. Again, the Army has taken that and uh, and put that on a truck. They call that uh, LAWS. Um, and um, and so other folks have actually looked at that as a possibility. It gets a little bit dicey with the number of personnel either at a port um, or at an airbase uh, with the shells. Uh, but I will tell you, there's a number of other guns that are coming out. One is uh, called um, Hypervelocity Projectiles, HVPs. And w there are several uh, companies and several organizations working on HVP capability um, and uh, looking at iterations where uh, essentially you would have a, a guided uh, round uh, hit a cruise missile or other uh, types of uh, things. So that needs to be in the mix. 
Um, directed energy also needs to be in the mix as well because of um, the, the need. And especially as we found out, we have a munitions shortfall. And anytime you have to rely on uh, uh, munitions, uh, you have a finite number and you can only produce so many and have so many in stock. And so directed energy also would play a role in this, but you're absolutely right. The gun aspects, there are, there are, there are a variety of ones, I think, uh, that go beyond CWIS that we're looking at, at least uh, in a ground-based defense. I still, I still think the CWIS is a great uh, system for the Navy. Um, some have looked at the CWIS um, and uh, essentially gone in some other directions. So several contractors looking at different uh, gun systems. And is there a sense of urgency because I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my great fear is that the fight comes before we're. I mean, we we have all these great plans. We we recognize the threat. We we are slowly but surely moving out. But then the fight comes well ahead of time. And, and then that's not a fight we win if we're not ready. So are are do we have the urgency that is required? Um. I think we have, so the PACOM commander has certainly made the defense of Guam urgent. Uh, what I have suggested in some of my writings, uh, in some of my papers, is we already need to be looking beyond the defense of Guam, and we need to be doing the defense of Guam equivalent on the first island chain and working with the Japanese. Um, and this would um, pay huge dividends because uh, we have to essentially look at the first island chain. Again, the Japanese bring a lot of integrated air missile defense capability to the table. We need to be integrating U.S. capabilities with Japanese capabilities. Um, um, again, some of that work is ongoing, but I think uh, more needs to be done. And I think we need the equivalent of a defense of Guam on some of the main islands um, of Japan uh, and likely uh, Okinawa. So that's where I think a sense of urgency needs to. So we need to be thinking already about, okay, what do we do after uh, defense of Guam? How are we going to protect our allies? And the only way we're going to do that is working together with um, um, the um, uh, Japanese self-defense forces and us as one of our key allies in the region, but Australia and others uh, would also uh, uh, play a role. So sense of urgency is ongoing in Guam. Uh, we need a sense of urgency that goes beyond the defense of Guam, in my opinion. Now, I've, I don't know if you knew this, Carl, but uh, I've started bringing my magic lamp. I, I didn't know if you ha- knew I had one, but I do have one. And I've been letting guests on the episode make three wish- wishes after rubbing my magic lamp. So I'm going to let you do the same mm-hmm. thing. And mm-hmm. so now that you get to make three wishes, as you think about, you know, missile defense and in the Asia Pacific, what are those three wishes? Yeah. So one of the three wishes is, um, uh, all the services need to step up and do missile defense. So it can't just be the Army. It can't just be the Navy. And heretofore, the Air Force um, has been focused mostly on space capabilities and some air capabilities. All three need to be upping their game. Um, The Army needs to basically increase its capabilities as well as its capacity, but the Air Force needs to step in. But then we also need to be integrating with our closest allies, 
um, and we need to go beyond the second island chain and be looking uh, also at the first island chain. And then my third area is, again, we focus a lot on active defenses, uh, but I will, I'll bring out this term and I'll go ahead and quote um, the 2018 NDS um, um, is we need to be looking at um, missile defense holistically. It is active defenses, passive defenses, and then I'm going to use a word called counter-strike. That's not in with the U.S. doctrine, um, but that deals with basically taking out the archers. So that basically means power protection and the capability of taking out, whether it's a bomber that's going to launch cruise missiles at uh, Guam, we need to take out the bomber before it launches the cruise missiles instead of taking out all the cruise missiles. If you've been following Japan, Japan had a huge development in December where they um, had their first national defense strategy, um, and they are moving into what they call counter-strike, which means that they are going to do offensive capabilities after they have been struck. Um, and so that's what we call counter-strike. Um, and so the Japanese are moving in that area. We need to help them. So that's my third wish, is we need to help them because our actual uh, offensive uh, power projection capabilities are actually pretty limited when you look at a posture and presence in the Pacific right now. And really, uh, the plans, at least open source, uh, don't show much improvement for us in that regard. Let me ask one final question as we come to an end in this show. And that, as I think about it, I, I sort of wonder and worry about the ability to defend you know, is it, you know, it's sort of that, you know, is the best defense a good offense or, you know, do we just defend long enough to not see our assets wiped out and we can then, you know, get them up in the air, get them out to sea? Because I can easily see a large scale missile attack from the Chinese that targets, you know, because you can argue that the Japanese Navy is the, probably the second best Navy in the world. So they would take them out. Uh, maybe potentially take out the Korean Navy. They've got some great ships. And and in that sort of initial opening attack that we see large-scale decimation and that, that it's just too hard to defend against it. Can you maybe talk about that for a second? Is is it, can we really defend it? Or do we need to be on alert? Do we need to be dispersing forces? You know, what? where are we? Yeah, so we need to be doing all the above. Um, and so part of that, uh, and I mentioned, is so when we look at integrated air missile defense comprehensively, we also have to look at the passive defenses. So we have to also look at hardening. We have to look at dispersal. Um, and I would argue uh, we need to bring back some constructs, um, so not to make this a Cold War, but some constructs where you have different forces on different levels of alert, and sometimes you would disperse those forces. And so all those, all those constructs should be on the table. Um, and so we have a menu out there. We just have to basically use some of those aspects uh, on, on the menu. But the fact remains is Japan can't come to the CONUS. So uh, again, we have some abilities to maybe not put as many forces forward, but at the same token, we have our closest allies that are also sitting there in that. And so there are some ways uh, to do that, to, to be able to reconstitute, but we should be looking at, um, again, all three areas. We should be looking at 
uh, active defenses, passive defenses, and counter-strike uh, what we call posture resiliency. And so um, that involves a lot of things. Uh, um, what the uh, uh, Marines are doing um, is uh, EABO, uh, Expeditionary Air Base Operations, and then what uh, the Air Force is doing is what they call Agile Combat Employment ACE. Um, and those have to do with uh, dispersal. All those concepts uh, need to be accelerated uh, and we need to get down to business. Carl Rayburg, thanks for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast. And I want to thank, thank you. you the very list. Much. Yeah, it was it was great to see you. Great to have mm-hmm. you on the show. It's uh, you know it's good to see you're still actively engaged and thinking and pushing the ideas that I think for many of the listeners are are important and important for the national security. Thanks to you, the listeners, as well, and we will see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. Well, and that conversation with Carl, I definitely have some afterthoughts. It is a complex problem trying to defend Guam, Japan, Korea, you know, forces in Okinawa, it's Japan, but, you know, defending our assets in the Asia-Pacific against a Chinese threat that is expansive. Uh, And I thought Carl did a great job of explaining that threat. And, you know, when we ended the show, he brought up, you know, several other points in regard to Chinese capabilities and what we do and don't know. So I think we'll have to have him back to discuss Chinese capabilities specifically because there's they they have such a a breadth of options to use against the US and they've been thinking about us for 30 years and they've been planning and building for this capability and we have not effectively responded because we thought they'd become a democracy. So we're now behind. So it was it was a great talk. I enjoyed it. Hopefully you did as well. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.